Well, it's nice to be back here in this hall again where I've sat in many positions, shall we say, and um, given lots of talks. I want to thank all of you for being here and to Mary for leading the sitting when at the last minute I decided that I wanted to write a new joy talk, um, different from ones that I had done before. So let's all just take a couple of breaths um, together and sort of share some air in and out. And even though many of you no doubt sat the sitting and have come to rest in this experience of the moment, it's easy just for the normal anticipation and gear shifting to arise. Plus, I need it. And I'd like to say and remind us um, and invite you to consider that we're part of a history of this practice of what's called Buddhism, but is really a stream of sort of sharing and books and talking and listening and all of us interested in some way or other in how to live and die more graciously, more joyously, And that for each of us, there's probably a different experience of life in some way into which we're weaving these teachings, finding what's helpful and not. Um, Teachings originally given about um, 2,600 years ago and sustained and given hand-to-hand in community on since then. But the teachings that we give here are also influenced by different cultures that they've passed through, including the current one. Um, So just to put ourselves in relationship and community with history and each other on on this earth in this time. And to remind you and myself just to reopen the welcome that Cambridge Insight intends to offer to each person Uh, folks of all races and ethnicities or ages, abilities, class, nationality, politics, sexual orientation, gender expression, whatever that might be for you in whatever body and history you've had, we've had, and can we feel that each of us is owning this space, that it's here for each of us, and that we include each other at the same time. And by including each of us, that's how the space includes us all. And it's important for me, it always feels good if I can say it, not just as a kind of list of things at the beginning, but sort of hold it as I say it. And with that, if there's any part of ourself or any imaginary or real person that we may not wish were not in this room with us, can we just soften and uh, accept that presence? Maybe even bring some of that forward and let it be here. So this kind of opening of the heart or the imagination is not separate from the way that I want to talk about joy. And just to start 
um, I was asked to give this talk by um, Lynn Whittemore, the director. She said, can you give a talk on joy? And I was like, sure. Somewhere, sometime in July, she felt it would be neat <laughs> to kind of talk about this a, a week after the holiday, I don't know, or when it's hot or um, something. And maybe it does feel important. Um, I know that my friends and I spend quite a lot of time just despairing and deploring and wondering what to do and feeling like things are kind of crazy and unstable. And um, it's easy for that conversation to end up feeling kind of like it's settled um, a disaster in our minds. And at the same time, maybe what feels kind of difficult about that is that we all really do want to kind of enjoy our life. We want to feel free. And that desire and that wish to enjoy is just as natural to each of us as our breath and trying to find our way to that. And the inspiration and the creativity and the beauty of life are also part of our nature as a human being, each of us, and how often and how easily we fall out of touch with that both in ourselves and in each other, like how easy it is to put other people into categories and feel like we know who they are or what they are. And to start to feel, this is where I want the talk to end up, but that inspiration is literally your in-breath and joy is a part of us, something we know how to do that is inseparable from our nature and woven through and to start to feel like we can trust that. Like just when I was coming in, the person receiving people at the door was saying, uh-oh, we were just starting to worry about you, that you weren't coming. And I was, and at that moment, there was this whole parade of young boys who were out in the street honking their horns and raising up on their bikes. You know, they were having like this little bike gang and they were all like showing how they could go up on their rear wheel and still pedal. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, joy talk. That's it, there's a joy. <laughs> and an expression and, you know, the fun of actually sharing uh, what they're wanting to do. Sort of, and yet, and yet, you know, I was doing some research for this talk and I was on YouTube and there was this ad before, there was a TED talk I wanted to sort of get into a little bit and there was this ad that I thought at first was the t TED talk teaching because I didn't, I didn't have the video on, I was just listening through my ears and it was this person who wanted to talk about how to work toward your dreams and visions and enjoy life and not be controlled by boring work and have prosperity and all this stuff. And you could write off for a seven-day curriculum of our laptop lifestyle. <laughs> and I turned on the video then, and there was this guy like standing in front of a swimming pool with palm trees and stuff like that. Like The idea that what we want is this kind of easy life that... Uh, we can get so easily, if only you send off, give your information <laughs> to this person. <laughs> I digressed into doing some rev looking for reviews of the seven-day laptop lifestyle plan. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of, like, watch out. <laughs> and we're all, like, somewhat innocent in that way. Like, our, sometimes our wish for happiness... Um, gets kind of shallow or we think that certain things are what we need in order to be happy like it's an in order to thing. So what I want to start from in sharing this um, feeling like there was something I wanted to share and uh, 
that even it, in itself is a little bit unusual for me. I'll say why later, but I would say it was about 15 years ago when I was starting to relate a little bit to a Tibetan practice um, that I started reading some Tibetan texts and stuff. And I've, there were lists of a kind of bad practitioner, like a bad student, and that was a person whose heart was like a stone that had sat out in the rain for quite a long time and was wet on the outside, but just as dry on the inside as it had been for a thousand years. <laughs> and it was strange, but I felt like that was a description of myself. Um, even though I'd been to Burma and ordained as a nun and been through all these retreats and stuff, I wasn't kind of like trying to find some label to judge myself by, which can often happen just, you know, how the lack of self-esteem just Velcros on to something like, I must be really like that. It felt like it was actually something real in that image that I could identify with and learn from. And it wasn't just to put myself in the rubbish bin of the bad practitioners. It actually was sort of enticing to think, like, what were they talking about? But And it wasn't that the I didn't feel like the teachings had penetrated. It was something more about my heart. What did that mean, that it felt like it was kind of dry inside? And it was like I hadn't even really thought that there was an inside to it before or something like that, like something might come from the center or the I maybe I had been trying to dismantle myself as a being through my meditation practice or something and not even have a center or something I don't know it was like that so I felt this intention of um, trying to figure out how to not be a stone with a dry center and um, I did know that I wanted to not have that feeling but I didn't know what the other feeling would be like since it didn't exist yet and um but there was some little sense of where that understanding was coming from, and it wasn't philosophical. It felt very real and human at the time. Maybe now I would say that, you know, the ability to soften and accept the, that I felt that way would be kind of a shortcut, but um, since my heart was still sort of hard, I, didn't, I decided I just wanted to set forth and get away from whatever this was that I felt. So there was an intention and then a kind of mystery to try to f figure it out or just hope that something would listen to that kind of silent prayer to help me. And I've certainly heard a lot of people in the meditation halls say, I need to open my heart. I really need to open my heart. And often my impulse is to reassure them and say, you have a human heart just like any other heart. And it probably is already sort of open, but maybe sort of scarred like most of our hearts are. Um, but anyway, that's what happened to me, even though I didn't want to say to myself, I want to open my heart. <laughs> it's too gooky. So what happened, I guess, is hard to really trace in a linear way, but I had started to teach, and I found myself listening and focusing a lot on other people and other people's experiences, which was part of it. Um, and I started teaching retreats on the things that I wanted to know more about, which is kind of how things teaching often works, that I taught what I needed to learn about joy and equanimity and loving kindness and the factors of enlightenment and all those kind of positive aspects of the Buddhist practice and also really trying to move in the other direction at the same time, like respecting the experiences of pain that we have and not feeling humiliated because we have pain and uh, trying to look into the wholeness of our life and feel ourselves in, in all the rawness as being adequate and human and natural 
beings and not try to sort of use the practice to bypass or run away from or become more pacified before we actually do it in a genuine way or before we understand the wisdom that there is to be found in that turmoil or within disagreement and conflict and unhappiness and all of that. So what I found for sure and taught about uh, for a long time is that um, there's so many methods to recondition our minds to, re- to experience uh, joy more deeply and more frequently and more authentically in our life. And the fact that we can do it sort of from the outside in felt very surprising to me and also really reassuring. Like if it's something that you don't have, you, it's not exactly like you go and shop for it. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. <laughs> it's like not like that. I have done that. You know, sometimes shopping is the answer, but um, <laughs> not on a deep level. But let's say some simple teachings on joy from the outside in, like I remember my colleague Hugh Byrne, who lives in D.C., and um, we used to teach together often at Southern Dharma in uh, North Carolina, and he just loves all the studies, you know, the studies about how smiling makes you happier and stuff, and one of the things that he cited is that there's this outgrowth of the smile study that if you can't even bring yourself to smile, you will feel better if you just stick a pencil in your mouth. <laughs> and I, like this. Because it stretches you. It stretches your mouth and your face in the same way. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I've, I've, also, I've also thought about that a few times since he said it because it's sort of dramatic. So while I was writing the talk, I did try it for a while. <laughs> and I found that I felt really silly, which was sl- kind of entertaining, and that I started to drool more. <laughs> I don't know if that's the same as joy and... <laughs> I wrote the Buddha didn't have an opinion, and I thought, well, he probably did have one, so I could say the Buddha didn't show up to give his opinion about whether putting a pencil between your teeth is actually a, could be called a Buddhist practice. But it was kind of fun. And it was sort of a growth, you know, a sort of a growth mentality or a growth mindset, being willing to try it and sort of the fake it till you make it in the extreme. But I didn't several other things like that and practice things that felt like they were things that I had to sort of remember to use and do um, and repeat and hold on to, which I would do them for periods of time, like exchanging gratitude lists with my sisters, and which was great. We had for a while this text messaging thing where we would just write three things per day, and it was like the salmon, my daughter, and the fact that Beth called just now or, you know, stuff like that. And it had a lot of interesting side effects like many natural remedies will where I learned more about what was going on with them about like that someone had taken their garbage out or something like that and feeling closer you know to them day by day but that sort of faded away after a while um, we st- we lost interest and we tried to revive it and then we didn't it didn't seem to have any life to it the other one was um, just remembering things that feel supportive, like even the earth and the cushion and friends and remembering and good things that I've done, which when I, that was first suggested to me, it was a little surprising. Like I was lying on the floor in a yoga class with this very eccentric yoga teacher in Florida who was talking about um, how 
weird it was that a dog could give birth to puppies from different fathers and they'd all be being given birth to at the same time. And I was like, why is this part of the yoga class? And then she said, just think about good, your, all the good things that you do in your life. And I thought, I have never thought about that before, even though it's in the sutras. And there are even some stories about people achieving levels of concentration when they remember their goodness. And I heard it taught so many times, but I guess I was lying on the floor and more vulnerable or open. And I, so I tried it. I thought, um, you know, I've given some birthday presents in my time and stuff like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And connecting more with actually the genuineness of, of those things, like to even relive them felt really good and felt like it was sort of straightening something out in the direction of not having a stone in my chest. So that, um, reflecting on your good deeds, which is actually recommended as a support for meditation practice all the way back to the Buddha. And noticing moments that f- when I felt connected and celebrating that and learning from my friend Lynn Hartwell to go and like really practice looking at bank tellers and things like that as persons and it was something that I did but she helped me focus on it more and having a little exchange as when you buy a battery at the hardware store or something like that you know it's really actually pretty uplifting for our life rather than sort of it's going through it like I'm buying stuff and I'm going home and I'm putting the battery in the doorbell, something like that. There's something else that happens and it doesn't even take more time. So there were times when doing this it felt, I don't know how you feel so far about this, like does this sound okay? Does anybody feel like it's weird or like unsafe or something? Because... There, it, you never know what's going to happen in terms of that. Complimenting someone else on their new haircut. Planting a tree. Even feeling like you want to help when you can't. Wanting to help and making a mistake. Trying to remember your intention and remember that you might be willing to learn um, So to kind of not let those things wash away and to slow down and take part in that side of our life, there is some scientific research about that, about how uh, we do tend to go right more to worry, like things that are working out, we don't need to problematize or work out. You know, they're not necessarily threats to us, and our mind tends to be set up in survival mode to keep, you know, grinding away at what's the problem. Um, So those things all felt a little bit like at the, at the time they had their time and stuff like that. And I'm doing a new one now, which is to, when I wake up, I just say, I feel thankful to be alive one more day. And I read this exercise in a book about developing your intuition. And it did somehow sort of feel like reaching outside what my normal little silo of concerns would be, like go in and get some coffee right away as fast as possible, you know. <laughs> Or what do I have to do now? You know, what, what's next? Or what are my obligations today? Oh no! Oh my God! Um, like that. So many things that I, if I think of them all as a list, I don't want to do any of them. <laughs> you know? So interrupting that and saying I'm glad I'm alive. Um, when I first started that one, um, I started doing it in the afternoon instead of in the morning. And by then, my normal anxiety and grumpiness <laughs> were in full swing, and I was like. Not that happy. I think I can manage equanimity or kind of even-minded and get rid of some of this like deeper static, but I can't get to joy. But 
I can do it in the morning, I've discovered. Um, and it seems to be helping kind of redefine my attitude to life and, you know, look a little bit deeper and soften things. It, you know, it's really interesting. So then when I read research, like, about kids in Syria who have been bombed out of their houses, and there's some study that the ones who were able to say thank you to the rescue workers are happier a year later or something like that. You know, something about that attitude of thank you actually makes us stronger inside. And it's interesting because from my previous dry-as-stone mindset, there was a lot of sense of self-sufficiency and, you know, not needing to be taken care of by someone or anything that I was going to do it, you know. And the thank you seems to be a kind of also has an opening quality of recognizing not only a connection but a need. William James said, any experience, oh, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items I notice shape my mind. And it's a little bit strong to say only those items that, you know, only those items I notice are the ones that shape my, it's a little kind of, it seems it has a little touch of hubris or something in it. Um, But it also reminds me of the mind training that the Buddhist practice is so good at mapping and suggesting the phenomenology of actually paying real attention to what brings us into suffering and what is harmful for us versus what's supportive and healing. And to look at sort of the construction of suffering in our minds and try to understand first how it's put together and then maybe how to take it back apart again and see it piece by piece. And when the pieces are dislocated, then there's a lot more room to move through. As Rumi said, don't try to develop love, just try to see the obstacles to it. And in seeing the obstacles, in that itself it begins to dissolve. So the deeper joy I wanted to talk about is actually finding that there's a really good heart underneath all of this, that there is a goodness that's innate. And in the dry and dusty Pali suttas you can find, or actually I think it's in the commentaries that you've, I haven't seen it in the suttas, but the commentaries say that the negative aspects of our minds, it's actually woven through the whole project of liberation, that you can be liberated so that when you like no longer give rise or are entrapped so much by anger and jealousy and greed and impatience and all that stuff, then you're at peace and you tend to be more generous and more loving and a better kind of, you know, better friend that the goodness comes out, and the goodness cannot be completely covered up or cannot be completely uprooted. The novelist, Ann Tyler, who was interviewed this past couple weeks ago because of a new book, she rarely has given interviews because she's very, very shy. She's written something like 70 books or 17 books and novels about Baltimore, novels about just normal human beings and She said, I don't think living is easy even for those of us who aren't scrounging. It's just hard to get through every day and find a reason to get up in the morning. It just amazes me that people do it, and so cheerfully. Does anyone else have regularly a hard time getting through the day? (laughs) I was thinking when I was starting to write this talk, I am not embodying joy. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
But His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, for example, you know, that he hasn't had necessarily an easy life, but he's pretty happy all the same. You know, that there is a way for that. I brought this quote from, he's a very big thinker from the Max Planck Institute. Um, he's named Isaiah Lorado Wilner. He's a philosopher who talks about how um, indigenous, indigenous cultures and informants actually have intended to influence Western intellect and, and the Western intellectual tradition and how much we need to turn the lens around when we think about anthropology, so that long word. Transformation and making change is not only created the world in these mythologies, it is what enabled people to make their way in it, negotiating a path through the currents of destruction. Transformation, making change, enables us to make our way in the world, negotiating a path through the currents of destruction. So in this he was talking about stories from the indigenous Northwest, and I with respect would say that I'm hoping not to appropriate that, but to mention it as an example of this human wish and need to tell stories to ourselves that there is a way through starvation and epidemics and cultural destruction and crazy politics and that stories emerge and are useful within that and that the story that I'm hoping to tell you now is also part of those kinds of stories that these are our stories about how to live um, messages that we can open to and start to weave into um, our own life so a lot of these ideas are kind of gifts that we get from the past or from others which was another piece of my heart opening practice that I've had a number of wonderful western teachers and a number of very traditional Asian ones and in the Asian side of my practice life, there has been a lot of kind of slightly ritualized bowing and devotional ideas and ideas of revering people as senior to me in their understanding and stuff like that, which we have somewhat deliberately tried to tone down in this practice. And yet I felt that kind of having that conscious kind of relationship of appreciating people and teachers and each other was a very important um, thing in my journey, like doing prostrations when you come in the room and stuff like that, and really um, feeling the appreciation for the care with which uh, the teachings have been handed down and stuff like that. It wasn't just something that narrowed my mind and made me think, like, we've got the best brand here and these people are so amazing, you know. It wasn't exactly like that. It was more like a human relational thing like it's it matters who's talking to me who's talking to you and that you're in front of a person um, who's making some kind of effort and when I teach I'm also in front of people who are making an effort <laughs> to listen and bring forth the best in ourself or you know at least consider what's being said so a lot of the practices that I spoke about with this kind of rejoicing and stuff, they might fall a little bit into the um, basket of what's called the loving-kindness and um, compassion side of Buddhism. Like, there is a formal practice of joy called um, mudita or sympathetic joy, and it's 
being able to be happy for the happiness of oneself and each other. And there are deliberate, um, very focused kinds of trainings through using language, and probably some of you have done this type of practice, like may your happiness and good fortune continue. And when I did it, I was supposed to think about someone who was really very, very happy and to just wish that they would continue to be happy and that they would go on and on being happy and that nothing would take it away from them. Um, and it was, I found it very ecstatic. Like In some psychological way, it felt like because I was not in an envious position, then all these imaginary beings that I was saying, like, may you be happy, the butterfly for your beautiful wings, and may you be happy even you know, prisoner for the light in your cell that comes or for the little piece of sky you can see. Like, whatever makes you happy in your life, may you have it. May your piece of sky get bigger. May your wealth become greater. May your power to do good become even more. May your books sell more. May your movies be successful. And somehow I felt invited into the company of all this good fortune when I was doing that. And it's described as being um, sort of in its spirit, the kind of innocent non-envious joy that you feel when a baby might learn how to clap its hands or something, you know, that this kind of innocent being, this vulnerable person is just having something that's good for them. It it gets complicated when you think that people are rejoicing and being mean and stuff like that. They don't want to encourage that necessarily. Like, you might wish for them that they might feel powerful enough to feel okay without being mean or something like that, but that's almost more like compassion. But the other outgrowth of that kind of practice of rejoicing is learning how to be grateful, which I talked about somewhat in myself. And I think there's a relationship between having kind of enough in our own life. Like you can see that in many people, like I have acquaintance or actually close relationship with one person who it feels like it's hard for them to let someone else be the focus of attention, like at a wedding or a graduation or something like that, like that this um, person just has trouble. And they're, they're pretty young, so it's hard. It's just kind of hard for them. But you can see that the sense of not being good enough makes it harder for them to actually let someone else be celebrated because it automatically feels like it disqualifies them completely. And I have that too. Like I'm a writer and sometimes if a book is too successful I say like I'm not going to contribute to that until next year. After the big fuss is over then maybe I'll read it. (laughs) I have to look at looking at the karma of that. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) It's as if there's, as Sharon Salzberg always says, in the mind state of envy you feel like there's only a certain amount of happiness to go around. And it's not true. So I'd like to move into the next aspect of joy practice, which has more to do with the insight or mindfulness side of the practice. So I've talked a little bit about what's the loving-kindness-generated practice or the recognition there of gratitude and the goodness of life and stuff like that. And then the insight practice, which is the joy of being real, you know, no matter how hard it is, like the sense of integrity we can get from telling the truth to ourselves and others or about how we feel or about what life is like, like that it is hard to get through a day rather than pretending that it's not. 
I was reading in the New York Times um, this Sunday's book review. There's a book called The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. So that's about trauma, and I'm sure that some of us in the room are somewhat familiar with trauma work. And the deepest well, healing the long-term effects of childhood adversity. Nadine Burke Harris is the writer. She's a doctor, and she was working in an inner-city health clinic. And um, it said, is in the review, she realized that she could give out all the inhalers and Ritalin she wanted, but unless she addressed the underlying issues of trauma. The medications were just a bandage. So let's say that wallowing and negativity, um, being harmed when you're young, having terrible relationships, accidents, losses, all that kind of stuff, our body naturally puts these stress hormones out and over the long term or at the wrong time or in the wrong way, they can be actually pretty harmful and give us a kind of physical and mental deficit that um, can be crippling but can also be overcome. So how we've been affected by life and by the injustices of life is kind of an important study for each of us to understand. Like we probably all know that there's stuff that we do that isn't the best, that maybe comes from our family, or we have carry attitudes or reactivity from ways we've been targeted, or all, all that kind of stuff that's hard to work with. And what I love about the Dharma space is that there is real acceptance and an attempt to understand that this is part of our human life too, and that we can work with these traces so Nadine Burke Harris's um, understanding was that we really help each other in this, that sometimes by giving love to someone when they're not in a good space, like I'm talking about my younger friend, and that can really be helpful, along with boundaries, but also loving kinds of boundaries, and that, no, you don't look horrible in your dress, you look great, you know, you're actually a beautiful um, person. Not only, it's not just the words of that, of telling someone they look good, but it's caring enough to address and approach someone when they're in that state. And as you do that kind of work, you understand that really it's not just this lifetime. You know, sometimes you could think of the Buddhist rebirth thing as being what our ancestral karma is like, like what our great great grandparents went through and suffered to survive and bring us to this day like I inherited some family huge old family Bibles and I found this letter inside from one of my great aunts who lived in I don't know somewhere like Indiana or somewhere that I've never been and she was writing this really like mean catty letter about her neighbor and who she who the neighbor might be stepping out with and why <laughs> and why they might be interested in that particular man because he had so much money and it was just like nasty and I thought how could the person not even be embarrassed to write down that kind of mental process on a piece of paper and here it is a hundred years later and I'm reading it and I'm ashamed that she's my relative <laughs> you know and I wondered you know like what pressures were on that person or how lonely they might have been or and then I thought well also this is part of maybe something that made my stony heart be the way that it was all the way down and you know through my 
mother's line is creepiness. Or my great aunt Thelma Hellison, who always used to say, like she would go, she went to bridge parties in Needles, California, where she lived in a trailer, and she said, "Well, everybody else brings Jello salad, I bring chicken." <laughs> like, I'm better than them. <laughs> are you really? <laughs> in the moment of saying it, are you really? But we all have those little icky thoughts. Alan Watts writes, life, reality, and the Tao can be at once Christ or Buddha or Lao Tzu and an ignorant fool or a worm or a... I'm just not going to say that name. This is something mysterious and wonderful and really worth devotion if we consider it for a while. For life and reality are not things we can have for ourselves unless we allow them to all others. They do not belong to particular persons any more than the sun, moon, and stars. So opening to know that it's real, that this world is filled with beauty and with pain, um, actually is a funny way of getting joy. It helps us understand the differences and all the interconnections that lead one way and lead the other way. Like, I remember reading about Tasmin Malik, the, um, I think that was her name, the San Bernardino shooter who was so attached to her numbers of YouTube viewers for her exercise videos. And she just got more and more and more strange and insane over time, like angrier and angrier and angrier about this one thing. And it can also go the other way you can get more and more open and open and open um, and mostly you won't make it into the news most likely but you can see and feel for yourself like there might be ways in which oneself has become more shut down of late in some ways to the humanity of other human beings maybe we don't have to agree with how everybody else thinks but there's a lot of othering out there And if we don't, if we feel kind of the humanity of everyone or the life and reality of everyone, then our chances of being happy are greater, like um, by far, because our mind is bigger. So in insight meditation or mindfulness practice, joy or what's called piti starts to arise when our attention is more in touch with the bare realities of present experience of, of the truth not as bogged down by thinking and projection and opining about it. Generally, the embodiment piece is really important for this practice, and it's why there's slow walking, why we step so slowly in walking meditation generally, and enriching the actual experiential field that we feel through our senses, our sense-based real nature here and now through our body and our mind not kind of artificially taking over like 99% of the space. So and as through practice or through whatever it is, through the heart, through insight, we get to open up more and more to the actual present experience. It sort of bumps out the reactivity. um, And we can start to see the beauty and the rawness of life. And in that openness of being able to be with more, before we start to have opinions or shut down or move to change it. Um, now this is kind of within reason, so we're not kind of out there letting you know, cars run over our foot or something like that, it's not like that, but it's within um, sitting here and being with ourselves and those kind of travails that we meet 
through the day to be willing to experience it and not start to judge ourselves or move away, then with the open heart, this can start to bring up a, like a really oddly energizing physical joy. And it's a somewhat undiscovered path of meditation practice that this openness to experience actually um, does something very interesting such that we start to be able to be with our sadness as a kind of physical wave of experience that is beautiful and it's less and less of I don't like to put down the story because thoughts are part of it but you get less and less kind of trapped in only the story there's access to kind of more sensual openness through the whole thing and it's you start to see a lot of the nuances and the changes in it Pat Coffey, um, another fellow teacher, calls it limbic loving, that even the really basic survival parts of us um, are actually trying to take care of us. So you can start to see pain is the imperative to move it, you know, move it along. Let's get out of here, get away from this. Anger, a protection, some kind of protective energy, a burning in your mind, like a wound of knowing something's wrong and actually caring that it's wrong and wanting it to be right again. So as we can be with it and kind of see and respect some of the characteristics of those experiences in an embodied way, we start to perceive them differently, like in 3D. And we automatically get more choices out of it, like we're not just controlled. One time at a retreat, I was in a wilderness area and there was this possum that was coming to eat cat food regularly and I was really like excited when I would see the possum eating the cat food and one time I was standing kind of near the little cat food dish and it came up on the porch and started waddling toward the cat food dish and suddenly it saw my foot there and I went like this and I thought I'm standing over it it was like right here and it had no idea what the rest of me was it was just this shoe that it didn't like and it like went away from that and that's kind of an example of what I'm saying, like a lot of times our reactivity is just like that, like we just have a moment in which we know we don't like something and we don't see the, a lot more like, of it. And it's important to have those reflexes, but sometimes it's important to see more than just the shoe that you don't like. It's important to see like more aspects of the situation or even know that there's more to it than you understand. Like, I'm leading this teacher training thing now in the... Um, there was a complaint about something like, why did you do it this way? And the teaching group thought, you know, if we share why it is this way, the blame, the blaming feeling or the you did this this way mommy kind of feeling will shift into, oh my God, there's such a tremendous history behind this. And do we want to share that much intimate history for how this arose with these people who are just in training now and we thought like it brought up a lot of interesting questions like why don't we ask so many questions in the dharma or you know like is it okay to talk about how there's been conflict in these institutions that it's been hard for certain things to happen or there's been different things that didn't work and what we see is the result of things that both worked and didn't work and how much should people know about kind of, you know, what that, who was it, the von Bismarck or something who said that politics is like making sausage, it's better to eat it than watch it be made, <laughs> something like that. But 
I think there's room in our heart, and there's room in our heart to learn this piece, which is the ultimate place I wanted to go with this talk, that the joy that comes from the inside out that I feel that led to coming home to exactly this experience of maybe a not very enlightened human being, but at least feeling like I am home, or that when I'm practicing, I'm not, there's a Zen saying, um, when we practice, we're not looking for our nature, we're expressing it. Something more like that, like it's um, coming here. And knowing that I still have some, you know, ways still left to go, um, some downfalls and some mistakes are probably still ahead. Um, some things in me are not perfect. Um, certain kinds of people I don't get along with, or I, all that kind of stuff. You know, where I feel all kinds of different ways in which I would like to be like a better person than I am, but I actually feel like the person that I am is okay. And so to be able to have both of those pieces feels really joyous and important in a way that I don't know what list that's on um, in the suttas, but it's my list, I guess. So my current um, joy practice that I'm looking into, like I have the intention to do, is to have the discipline to offer myself um, more joyous experiences through discipline, like maybe going swimming a little bit more or something like that, um, rather than feeling like I have to work all the time. So Mahagosananda, the Cambodian monk, who some of you may have met when he was here in the area, it's maybe 10 years ago, I think he's, has, he's been dead for a little while, but he was a real peace ambassador in Cambodia at the time, and just a wonderful teacher. As he began to lose some of his cognitive abilities, he just became sort of more and more joyously himself, and he still had some teachings to give about feeling tone, about how pl- our love of pleasure and dislike of displeasure um, make us into slaves. Like, he could still teach about that. But he said, um, if we cannot be happy despite our difficulties, what good is our practice? And not only just opening to the difficulties, but the last piece is to try to make them better or change, like not just the equanimity, but the joy. So he walked across Cambodia handing out copies of the loving-kindness text, which fit very well with his culture. It was a Buddhist culture, so people could read the loving-kindness sutta and think about all the divisiveness and all the bombing and all the landmines and um, think about that as a value to bring their society back together and watch him doing it and watch him trying to live that. Or my Tibetan teacher saying that it's okay to be okay even when the outer situation isn't good, like it's a kind of permission that your own energy can have its own space to be relaxed and stuff and let it go at times. And I feel like um, people who have come through very oppressive and difficult situations such as Mahagosananda or my Tibetan teacher, who two of his siblings were murdered through the, in, during the Cultural Revolution, and he can still say that. It's okay to be okay inside, like your energy can be all right. And what does this person do now? He's working for his own people and also part-time here. And sometimes when he's here, I feel like he's just, you know, kind of a lonely, a lonely soul reaching for each other's hearts in a way. Like, you know, it's a, it's a very human kind of relationship. Um, or back to Nadine Harris, the doctor. 
I feel like knowing about trauma is empowering. Yes, it's difficult to face, but we have to do it. And we have to build systems to help people heal. She's talking about a human, human system, heart to heart, um, holding each other in love. So just to close the talk, there's a Spanish poet, Miguel Hernández, um, a very beautiful poet who died young of tuberculosis after a period of time in prison for having resisted the fascist regime. Before hatred, I am a kiss, a shadow with shadow and breath with all creation. No, there is no prison for me. They cannot tie me down. This world of chains is small to me and outside of me. Who can lock up a smile? Who can wall in my voice? I am free. Please feel me free only through love. That one gives me goosebumps because I feel like he's really talking to us, you know, even after his having died. So I read it again. And before hatred, which he's acknowledging that he does have, before hatred, I am a kiss, a shadow with shadow, breath with all creation. No, there's no prison for me that cannot tie me down. This world of chains is small to me and outside of me. Who can lock up a smile? Who can wall in my voice? I am free. Feel me free, only through love. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.